uh, everybody else settled too. Um, so we have, for this uh, 25th anniversary year, which we have just marked this October, uh, as a church, we have been spending the year doing something unique with our sermons, and that is we have been following um, a uh, pattern of reading the Scripture, which is designed to kind of get us over the whole council of Scripture, um, and that is something called the Revised Common Lectionary. If you look in your bulletin, the very first page inside the front cover shows ways we are like trying to encourage people to read the scriptures together this year. And one of the, the major books of the Bible we visited over and over again on this plan is the book of Luke. And so that's where we're going to be today. We're going to hear a very familiar uh, story from Jesus uh, in the book of Luke. Um, but before we get into that, um, I have uh, been uh, a homeowner living in my house for 20 years now. 20 years, um, which is amazing to think about. I'm at the stage of life where my kids are growing up and they're starting to think about, you know, kind of leaving, starting their own families and things like that. I, I, you know, 20 years ago, um, I was just a kid. That was just so crazy to think about. Um, and so um, something that I take very seriously at my house as a homeowner, we all have our things that we're like highly committed to on our turf. One of my things is I insist at my house that we have very clean gutters. So hearing all the rain coming up here, we also have a team at this church committed to keeping the roof clean. At my house, I'm a team of one. I get up on the ladder three times a year, and I make sure that my gutters are clean and that the rain can come and the water can move away from the house. And I am very, very um, uh, committed to this idea. And so one of the things that happens, we have a ritual, my wife and I, since it's about three times a year, I was doing the math this morning. We are up to uh, this conversation that I'm about to share with you happening probably 60 times. 60 times, same conversation. And the conversation goes, <laughs> goes like this. This is my wife over here, um, smiling at the moment. <laughs> the conversation goes like this. Hey, um, you're getting up, climbing a ladder. You're walking around the roof with uh, some like things like leaf blowers and rakes and things like that. Are you sure you want to do that? Shouldn't we hire someone to do that? Or, you know, if you get into trouble, you're going to let me know, right? You know, it's kind of dangerous for you to be doing that. Some of that roof is pretty high up there. Promise me you won't do that uh, when I'm not around. So we'll have this conversation. And um, I'm expert at this now. I've done it so many times. Kim will come to me with these concerns. And I would say, no, no, I've got it. Um, and if I get into trouble, I'll yeah, have my phone on me. I'll call you. And the conversation is much more about a ritual than it is about actual communication, right? So my, my thing is I want to get my wife into the house so I can get about my business of uh, doing the gutters and things like that. Because truth be told, some of the things I do on the roof are risky, you know. There's some peril involved, but that's part of the excitement too. So um, I have had a flawless record getting my gutters clean and with no incident, zero, you know, no incident, 20 years without an incident report. That would be the sign on the wall at the house, right? Except um, a month ago, and the windows are open on the house, and, you know, we're going to clean up the, you know, the, the first round of the dead leaves coming down before the real fall happens. So Kim comes out, we have the conversation again, and she says, I really want you to be careful up there. I'm like, I got this, baby. I got it. So I'm taking the leaf blower up, um, and it's an electric leaf blower. It's corded inside the house and things like that. She goes back in. And while I'm up on the roof, I am headed up to a flat part of my roof. And as I am blowing the leaves, I hear a scraping sound. 
that becomes a louder scraping sound and is followed by a clatter. The ladder on the front of the house slides off and falls down. I'm safe. I'm good. So I finish what I'm doing. I'm going to try to figure it out. So I go down, and it's, uh, it was at the front uh, of our house. There is a tiny little porch on the front. There's the ladder down there, and there I am up on the house with my leaf blower. And I'm faced with a decision. And I think I could call my wife. This is the thing that we have rehearsed. This is 60 times now. This is, the, this is, the, this is what we've been training for. And instead, I hatch a plan that, you know, this is the lowest part of the roof. And so it actually probably wouldn't be that hard for me to kind of like drape myself over, not where the gutter is on the front, but just over the side a little bit. And then there is a, a wooden kind of post. I could kind of grab that and slide down and throw myself into the soft ground cover below. You know, so I kind of come up with this whole plan and I'm about to do it. And there is uh, some of my neighbors go by and they're walking their dog and they have a baby carriage and they're walking by and I'm, a, I'm a, just about to go down and I see them and I actually wave at them and they wave back at me and I wait for them to kind of get out of <laughs> my line of vision and then I do my thing. I kind of lower myself. I'm 52 years old, by the way. I'm not a quite as spry as I used to be. And so I lower myself off the side. I kind of do this thing and kind of bang up my ribs a little bit, sort of slide down the spindle on the side of the house, throw myself off in the bush, and I look around. Nobody has seen me. My wife has not come out of the house, and I take the ladder and quietly put it back up again. Now, I want to bring up that story because it will help us prepare for this parable because what is it, and I, I don't think I'm any different than you, what is it about us that is so highly committed to not needing help, right? What, it's amazing. My wife is in the house. She has asked me, pled with me for 20 years to call upon her. She's a great woman. She's going to help me get the ladder up. She's strong. She can do the ladder. You know, all these things, what is it about me that makes me say, I will not do that at any cost? Um. The parable we're going to talk about today, that we're going to hear from Jesus, it's amazing because one of the things it exposes in us is a commitment that we all have that we think is actually good Christianity, and it is not. And that is, we think somehow, one day, we are going to outgrow our need to confess our sins and to need the grace of God. We're all, we all approach things that way. We think that Christian maturity is growing in knowledge and also ability. That somehow, if I become more and more mature, I have a caricature that I'm going to need God less. I'm not going to be the mess I am now. When I grow up, (laughs) when I grow up, I'm going to be of good character, self-control. I'm going to have no need of God helping me. But actually, the very opposite is true. Let me pray for us as we come to the scripture this morning. Lord, I I pray that uh, as each one of us has been chuckling about the way that um, at least me and probably everybody in the room, um, we just don't like to express our need. We're ashamed when we express our need. And Lord, I pray instead you would give us a fresh vision of the grace of God and that we would love to be the recipients of your grace. We'd love to be blessed by Jesus. We'd love to be loved by you simply because you love us. Lord, thanks for your word, which shows us who you are, who we are, and our need of you. Speak, Lord, 
We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So the parable we're going to read comes to us from Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Uh, in your bulletin, in your Bibles, and behind us, on the screens, Jesus speaking. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So when we step into this parable, here's what's been going on. Jesus has been telling many stories, providing many illustrations to the people he's interacting with about what what real faith really is. And it's hard for the people. So Jesus is talking a lot about desperation, you know, and need. And and it's hard for the people listening to really understand what he's talking about. Also, he's been talking a bunch twice before this time that the Son of Man, his ministry involves not just teaching, but his ministry is going to involve that he is going to have to die. And he's going to have to rise again on the third day. And it's very hard for the people to understand this. What is the place of this? So that, that is what's going on. We are well into many, many, many parables and illustrations that Jesus has given. And it's not easy for the people to get it. Um, Jesus is talking here. He has been surrounded by various groups of people. His disciples, that's been one group. People that are feeling their need. He's been surrounded by them at times. But here he is turning and he's looking directly at folks who are confident of their own righteousness. And here's how the way that Luke puts it. Okay, the audience that Jesus is talking to. Some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's who he's talking to. And so one of the things that's a secret to kind of like hearing this parable is... Um, the truth is, every one of the folks that were hearing him, including us today, we all struggle with self-righteousness. There are times where we become confident in something that we have done. And one of the things that it ends up doing to us is the same as this crew. You look around, you look at other folks that aren't doing that thing, and it's easy to build a club to say, at least I do this stuff, or you don't do that stuff. And I feel good about myself or better about myself as a result of that. We're going to talk about some of those dynamics today. This is not a parable about humility. Sometimes when we hear this parable talked about, it's talked about as an example that instead of exalting yourself and being proud, it's a lot better to be humble. But if it's that, watch out because you end up saying, I'm going to substitute in something new, a new practice for my old bad one. I used to be a proud person, now I'm a humble person, so I'm good, right? That's not what Jesus is getting at. He wants to try to tell a story, a parable, that gets underneath all of that stuff, all of those those impulses that we've got to not need help, 
to figure out some way to shimmy down from the roof. <laughs> you know, just that's what Jesus is trying to do in telling such a parable as this. And so Jesus uh, is telling a parable that he intends to show us our spiritual need. I want to read um, the, uh, the quote that's printed as your meditation for worship in the bulletin. So if you want to turn there, you can. I think AJ's got it on the screens behind, too. It's a, it's a Martin Luther quote that when I read it this week, I was like, oh, that is so helpful in trying to get at what Jesus is trying to say in this parable. So what happens is Luther is writing a letter to a friend of his, a young priest who is struggling with discouragement, who is feeling not very effective, who is feeling like, ah, oh, man, I, um, I'm not getting traction in my ministry. And so Luther writes some astonishing advice to someone who's discouraged. And he says, learn to praise him and despairing of yourself. Say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness just as I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and have given to me what is yours. You have taken upon yourself what you were not and have given to me what I was not. So the first thing he does to counsel his friend is, okay, you got to recognize it's a great exchange. You bring Jesus your sin, he will give you his life. You bring Jesus your death, and he will give you righteousness, okay? He wants to hit that great exchange that we love to talk about at this church all the time. So that's step one, but step two is shocking. And he says to this young priest, beware of aspiring to such purity that you will not wish to be looked upon as a sinner or to be one. For Christ dwells only in sinners. The man's discouraged. <laughs> He's not feeling effective. And Luther's encouragement to him is part of the key to courage, my friend. Do not stop thinking that you're a sinner. Don't try to like out-spiritualize yourself out of being a sinner. Don't try to graduate from being a sinner. Because if you recognize that you're a sinner, then that makes you available to all that God has for you in Jesus Christ. You're like a bucket. And what God is going to lavish on you is power indeed. As we get into this parable, one man recognizes that he's a sinner. He doesn't stop doing that. But another man is seeking to not even appear as one. Okay, in this parable, there's two people and there's two conversations. Two people, two conversations, which is the heart of the parable. And uh, first thing I want to say is it is super hard for us, if you've read this parable before, if you've grown up in the church, if you've taught kids Sunday school, all those things, it is super hard for us to not get ahead of Jesus. And so we hear the parable, and especially as we hear about Pharisees, we who have been churched go immediately to, oh, Pharisees, that's a bad guy. All right, when we read this, because we've been trained that if we're talking about a Pharisee, a teacher, a leader of the, uh, the religious aristocracy, one of the things that we think about them is, oh, they're kind of like evil villains, right? That's what we assume. But Jesus telling to, the, to this group, he actually is picking the person that everybody would assume is the absolute best. He's trying to pick a character that would be universally accepted to this crew as this is an awesome man and a pillar of the community. This is a righteous man. And the secret to why Jesus picks that, he picks a character who's exactly like the people here in the story, right? 
So Jesus wants to capture them by telling, says, hey, I'm going to make the main character of our story you. And people think, oh, this is going to be a good story. Um, in my family, there is a special relationship between um, my father-in-law and my son. It's amazing. Uh, sometimes we call Coleman Little Charlie because he actually looks much like his grandfather. And they have a special relationship. They like a lot of the same things. Um, and they have a lot of the way, same ways of thinking. Um, and uh, his grandfather, Coleman's grandfather, dotes on him and loves him so much. Every summer we go to see them and uh, we joke because it is a guarantee that there is a certain conversation that's going to happen. It's been happening ever since Coleman was a baby. And that is there is going to be some time in our visit to Kim's mom and dad where uh, Charlie is going to kick back and he's going to kind of go into Coleman worship mode. He's just going to like kick back and he's going to look at Coleman and he's going to be like, just think the contemplating Coleman. And he's going to be like, man, this kid, he is something else. He has got the world by the tail. He is good looking. He is smart and creative. And he is a good leader. You know, reminds me of me. <laughs> Every single time. And it's part, it's, it's part of the charm of the whole situation. He just loves his grandson. But we laugh and laugh that Charlie finds Coleman so fascinating because it's like holding up a mirror to Charlie. <laughs> so Jesus is employing really the same strategy here with these you know, self-righteous people. It's like, let me tell you a story. And they look, it's like oh, Jesus holds up a mirror and says, oh, Pharisee, the best of the best reminds me of me. That's what's happening there in this story. And the tax collector is actually a bad guy. Sometimes some of us might be conditioned to think, oh, you know, they're kind of the secret good guys. Hearing this story, no, Pharisee is a tremendous person. A tax collector is a really, really despicable person with habitual sins, betrayal. It is not a good situation with the tax collector. So there's two conversations. The first one, let's take the, uh, the Pharisee's conversation first. So outwardly, he seems to be talking to God. He starts off. Uh, and he, he speaks to God and says, God, I thank you. But that's where, that's where the talking to God stops. Because the next thing that happens is there's a bunch of talking to himself. So, and, um, there's a bunch of things about, uh, people talking about translation here. It's a standing by himself, prayed thus. There's really part of the sense of that is this guy is alone. He is standing by himself. He is talking to himself about himself. Right. So that, and, and you, you may have been in prayer meetings like this before, where sometimes someone say, says the, 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 the prayer is basically, God, help me to be something. Right. Which there's nothing wrong in that in and of itself. But take it, you know, let's sort of ratchet it up and say, God, these, you know, I thank you for me uh, you know, on all these levels that I'm not bad like these other people. And also that I am very practiced in my religious duties, tithing, fasting. Um. When I read this this week, again, that was another thing where I thought, oh, surely at this point in the parable, when Jesus was telling this to the group of folks that trusted in their own righteousness, this must have been the tipping point where they said, oh, Jesus, we get you. You're saying that we have a problem. But I uncovered something that I never saw before this week, even though I've studied this parable a bunch. We actually have a record 
um, in the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament uh, that comes from about the time of Jesus and the generation after, where there's model prayers for what it means to be a Pharisee and go into a worship service. Model prayer, like prescribed prayers for what it means if you were to come into worship, just like today. What is it you're supposed to say so that you're doing a good job praying as you go to worship? And here's an example of one of these prayers. It's astonishing. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, that you have set my portion with those who sit in the school of God. And you've not set my portion with those who sit on street corners. Like that's like (laughs) recommended that if you want to do a faithful prayer as a Pharisee, the very first thing you do is you distinguish yourself from people who don't go to school. Instead, they sit on street corners and you thank God for that. I rise early and they rise early, but I rise early for words of Torah and they rise early for frivolous talk. I labor and they labor, but I labor and receive a reward and they labor and do not receive a reward. I run and they run. But I run to the life of the future world, and they run to the pit of destruction. Thank you, God. Isn't that remarkable? And one of the things it tells me is that the Pharisees hearing this parable would not only say, oh, this is going to be about a Pharisee, this is going to be a good story. But even as the Pharisee goes through his prayer, which we find sort of shameless, proud, the Pharisees would hear that and say, that's a good prayer. That man is praying according to the way that we have been taught and schooled. The Pharisees would be in a good agreement that this story is going just great. Um, the Pharisee is comparing himself, not to good people, but to super bad people. And in doing so, and this is in light of the stuff, the story I led into the sermon with, the Pharisee is working very hard to distance himself from the very thing that would qualify him for the kingdom of God, needing God's help and forgiveness. What gets you into the kingdom is an admission that you need an atoning sacrifice. You need forgiveness of sins. You need, you need things to be set right. Instead, the Pharisee, 100% of his energy is spent on, God, I thank you that I'm self-sufficient, autonomous, that I don't need you, and I offer myself as a sacrifice to you. Isn't that interesting how he ends up approaching this, too? Um, a counselor that I've learned a lot from is a guy named Dave Pallison. And he's uh, from one of his books, Speaking the Truth in Love. He talks here, puts his finger on this sort of dynamic. Our self-help culture is preoccupied with self-talk. But God's word gets you out of the monologue business entirely. It gets you talking with the person whose opinion finally matters. The problem of self-talk is that we aren't talking to anyone but ourselves. A conversation ought to be taking place, but we repress our awareness of the person who threatens our self-fascination. What Pallison is saying is all of us, all of us have got conversations going on all the time. And so much of our conversation is us talking to ourselves about ourselves. And if you do that, if you're kind of given to that kind of conversation, and again, you're just like me. I know you're having these conversations. 
I know it. Jesus knows it. That's why he ends up setting up the parable this way. We've got two things that we end up talking to ourselves about. One, one message is you're a loser, right? You're stupid. You're dumb. You're rejected. That's one part of the conversation we have. And what do you do to cover that up? It is so painful when we say those sorts of things in a loop in our head. We end up scrambling to say, but I've got this one thing that makes me not as bad as that other person. And we try to take care of our shame and our guilt with a posturing which just subs in uh, some way of trying to redeem ourselves. And Pallison's point is we got to get out of this sort of monologue business altogether. It is not working for us. All this talking to ourselves, either hating ourselves enough or trying to say, at least I'm not as bad as other people, it is having zero fruit in our lives when we do that sort of thing. And it's so interesting that um, when we have this kind of conversation with ourselves, what does this kind of self-righteousness do to us? Well, look at the Pharisee. Two things are happening in this man's life. One is he hates everybody. He has contempt for everybody. That's some of the ways he tries to find some way to feel good about himself. And he goes to his Pharisee friends and he says, at least we got the tithing and the fasting thing down. We're here at worship. Not like those other people that sit on street corners, adulterers, extortionists, and like that tax collector. And so what it ends up doing is it just feeds contempt in their lives and there is a lack of love. And then there is also isolation. It is so notable here that the Pharisee, when he goes home and he leaves this worship service where he is worshiping himself and speaking to himself about himself, he carries himself home. And his sense of contempt for others and for himself is only thinly veiled by this practice. But there's another man who goes home and no longer isolated. No longer isolated. And I want to talk about that man for a second. So the Pharisee is staking his life. He is staking everything on something that God can't even use. That's just himself. God might love him. God might be able to redeem him. (laughs) But he can't use the Pharisee to get God's approval. God needs to do something else. So we have one man who is staking his eternity on himself. And then we have another man who has a completely different practice where he stakes his life on God. He has run out of options. And again, this is the tax collector. So he humbles himself. He can't even look up to heaven. He's beating his breast. And he says to God, will you have mercy on me, a sinner? Tax collector is asking for this thing called mercy, for God just to not treat him according to the way he deserves to be treated. He knows his sin. Have mercy on me, a sinner. He is aware that he has transgressed God's love, betrayed his people, and been up to no good. And that there is something deeply, deeply flawed about him that has put a great distance between him and God. And so all he does is he prays to God, please don't treat me as my sins Deserve. And this would have been so offensive. So 
I want to just talk about worship for a second. So in, in these worship services that we do, um, since we're talking about a worship service, the ones that we do here today, if you come to worship on any given Sunday, I guarantee there's a few things that are going to happen. One is um, someone's going to call you to worship, and then we're going to spend time where we kind of greet each other, and then we're going to hear the Scripture read and pray prayers to God, and then a pastor is going to stand up and declare the good news of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to have a chance to participate, to live in light of that by coming forward and taking the Lord's Supper together. And as part of that Lord's Supper liturgy, we do the same thing every week. We stop, we confess our sins, we confess our need for God, we confess that we need God to do something on our behalf, and then the pastor declares, God's done it. Your sins are atoned for. Go ahead, confess your sins. They're fully atoned for. In Jesus Christ. And if you believe that, come forward and feed on him. So that's sort of our liturgy. What is this? What is the Pharisee's liturgy? <laughs> like, what's his practice when he goes into worship? His practice is a lot of self-congratulation. Good job, Pharisee. You're doing great. Keep it up. And also uh, self-righteousness and distancing himself from other people. The, the uh, tax collector is the complete opposite of that. This is the sweetest thing that I've had the opportunity to reflect on um, as I studied this passage this week. This tax collector, with a profound sense of his need for God to do something, comes to God and asks for mercy. God gives him so much more. Did you notice that? God doesn't give him just mercy. God is merciful to him. God does so much more. The scripture says, Jesus says to this crew, which man went home justified? The man asked that God would simply not treat him as he deserved, but the man goes home justified. And what that means is that the man goes home actually declared righteous. The man goes home with the approval and favor of God, not for who he is and what he has done, but simply because he trusts that God needs to do something on his behalf. This is the sweetest thing for us, church. We ask God for mercy. We have a sense of our shame and our need. We say, God, help me. Be merciful towards me. And what he does for sinners that cry out for him is so much richer, something that we can barely comprehend this morning, that God, looking upon his church, is well satisfied. And he says, church, you are mine, beautiful, righteous. You have a destiny. You belong to me. I just wanted my sins forgiven. (laughs) But he has given us the place of the son of God. This is part of the reason why this is so scandalous for these people. What? I have spent my life honing my religious practices and not being like those other people. And Jesus says, why don't you just cry out for mercy and find justification to boot? The one telling this parable has just been telling so many parables. He's been showing mercy. He's been hating self-righteousness. He's been talking about his death and his resurrection. But the one telling this parable is going to provide something that nobody in its hearing could even begin to grasp. That the one telling this parable is going to die on a cross very soon and justify the ungodly. He's going to take the place 
of the ungodly. And all who number themselves there will find fullness of life. Paul says in Romans 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due, the Pharisee. So the one who works, the one who does good deeds, the one who gives himself to religion. What he reaps as a result of that is all that he gets. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. His faith is counted to him as righteousness. Church, you're righteous. If you cry out to God for mercy, and you lay your deadly doing, your good doing down at the feet of Jesus and say, not even that gets any favor from you. I need 100% a favor that you're going to press into me through your working in our lives. People don't believe me when I say this. I don't believe it when people say it to me. But I say it today, maybe the Holy Spirit will <laughs> kind of open us up to this today. But one of the things that is true about the followers of Jesus Christ is that losing is a means of grace to us. And so I see it over and over again. And I guess the older I get, the more I begin to appreciate this. That the more I feel like next time I'm not going to be able to shimmy down off my roof because I'm going to be too decrepit. My back arthritis is going to be set in. You know, I feel that need, that weakness in my body. Or those I love have been given over to death. Or um, I can't do some of the things I used to do. So you, you start to lose things the older you get. But in God's economy, that actually opens me up to things that God could provide. This is why some of our elderly saints are some of the sweetest folks that are like, I have, I'm done my living. Instead, I am looking forward to the glory promised to all who die in Christ. That is a radical picture of dependence on God's grace. Your faculties decline, but your power, your kingdom power is on the increase. And you are saying with greater and greater shamelessness, Jesus, to you belongs the glory. So we hate our losing, but in God's redemption, boy, is it a means of grace for us. It's precisely our sins, even in this case, that, that commend us to God. He finds that sinner irresistible because he will get great glory in his redemption. I, one more story before we just wrap up and go to the Lord's Supper. So uh, we recently hosted uh, one of our theologians in residence, uh, Santos Buendia, our partner, um, who is planting churches in Peru. And Santos was a huge blessing to us when we were together for the month of September. And one of the things that we ended up doing was uh, we heard from him in teaching and preaching, but we had him come and do some leadership training for this fledgling, simple English service we're trying to put together. And, he, and Santos, his job is we asked him to answer this question. Santos, what can we do to reach Hispanic people? We're just beginning to do that. Do you have any teaching and encouragement for us? And so I'm such a pastor I asked him a question that I knew the answer to, right? So I'm like, yeah, come and do some training, but I already, already know this. And I fully expected him to be practical and to say, yeah, if you want to reach Hispanic people, two keys. You've got to have food, you've got to respect the family. So if you have food and family, you're going to have a party, and that's the way to end up capturing Hispanic people in your neighborhood. But what he said was so much deeper, a rebuke to me. And after he thought for a while in our conversation, he said to our team, um, 
excuse me, everything, everyone you meet, everyone you meet is struggling with self-contempt. Everybody. Everybody you meet is struggling with shame and the insecurities that come from that. It doesn't make any difference if they're a person. They're wrestling with that at some level. And they will not believe you when you say, come to our church. They will not believe you when you say, I really like you to come to our service. I really like you and your family to come to our party. They're not going to believe you. And so you need to go and compel them to come in. Um, a very Christ-like message for me because that's what Jesus had to do to me, right? And to you. If you're in Christ, Jesus had to come and get you. Because we're so stuck in our posturing, our self-righteousness, and hoping that we were good enough. But he compels us by opening our lives that we are sinners in need of grace. And for all who cry out to him for mercy, they find so much more that he has taken the place of sinners. Hear these words of institution as they come to us from the book of Luke. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, as I do now, ministering in his name. He gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it just as I do now, ministering in his name. saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Let's uh, join our voices, cry out to God for mercy as we confess our sins using this passage from the prophet Jeremiah. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers. For we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember And do not break your covenant with us.
Christian, lift your head and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see it? Do you see that same pattern? We're asking God for mercy. And the response is that he gives us so much more. That he doesn't just turn away from our sins, but takes the sinner's place, becoming sin for us. And not so that our sins are simply wiped away, that we might become the righteousness of God. My friends, when we confess our sins each week, it is not simply an admission of a few things we have done wrong. It is not an attitude adjustment that we've not been mindful of our need for God. It is a declaration that we are dead without what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And hallelujah, we cry out to God for mercy as sinners, and he has heard us, and he has surpassed what we asked him for, taking the sinner's place so that we might have peace and righteousness with God forever. Have mercy, Lord, and God answers. If you have come to the place in your spiritual life where you can recognize that sinners need grace that justifies, I just invite you to come to the table to participate in the Lord's Supper, to know that you have your Father's favor through the full atonement of Jesus Christ. If this is new to you, If you're not a Christian or this is something that you have not considered before, take today as a gift, an opportunity to reflect, could this be true? That God has so worked to justify the ungodly. I'm going to ask the elders and the deacons to join me up front uh, as we get ready to serve the supper. As you approach the cup, the outer ring is wine. The inner rings are grape juice. And all the bread is gluten-free.